Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts, Kate and Phoebe, will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to Your Gal Friday. I'm Kate Chaplin. And I'm Phoebe Freer. Today we are talking about a gal who was an American astronomer in a time when women couldn't vote and were rarely accepted for their scientific minds. Her work of cataloging the stars and creating the stellar classification system is still used today. She was also nearly deaf. We're uncovering the life and the legacy of your gal, Annie Jump Cannon. Yay! So, as kind of per usual, uh, I didn't didn't know anything about Annie Jump Cannon before this show. Don't worry, um, you're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a cool name. I don't know. Like, I feel like we could do a play on words with it or something. Yeah, right. I mean, that's my first thought when I hear her name. It's but, a like, name you remember. It really is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, astronomy has always, like, kind of fascinated me, though, um, especially when I was a kid. But I didn't really understand it. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. Especially as a kid, I never really thought about how scientists would take measurements of the stars and the planets before we even had the technology we have access to now. And I think sometimes that I take for granted that we live in the 21st century and that technology is getting more sophisticated and this quickly, like on a daily basis. Yeah, right. But... You know, I never really thought, how did astronomers study the stars without the technical equipment we have now? So learning more about Annie really opened my eyes to this. And it was really fascinating because to correspond that with other technologies, that's not what we have today. But they were still using it to their advantage. They were pretty much stretching it to the bounds (laughs) of what it could do. It was amazing. I mean, I'm in the same boat with you. I only knew her name and her name was tied to astronomy. That's about as far as I got, really. Um, I didn't even know what time period, you know, that she lived in. I didn't know what she studied when it came to astronomy. Uh, So I was really excited to kind of start this uh, research in this episode, you know, like on a clean slate. I know nothing about you. Tell me about your life. Tell me more. (laughs) Tell me more. When and where did she grow up? So, Annie Jump Cannon was born on December 11th, 1863, in Dover, Delaware. Yeah. Yeah. So, her father was Wilson Cannon, and he was a shipbuilder in Delaware, and he was also a state senator. And Annie's mom was um, Mary Jump, who was um, Wilson's second wife. So, Annie's mother was actually the first person to teach her about constellations, and she encouraged her to follow her own interests, and she suggested that... She pursues studies in, like, math and chemistry and biology and just all of the sciences. So Annie and her mother used an old astronomy textbook to identify the stars, and they viewed them from her attic. Nice. Yeah. So Annie's mother also taught her about household economics, which she would later use to her advantage in her research, which is kind of cool. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So Annie did go to college, and it was her mother's suggestion, and she attended Wellesley College, and she pursued physics and astronomy. She even studied how to make spectroscopic measurements. You'll hear more about that from Kate, but but I'm still kind of, I kind (laughs) of know what I'm talking about. 
Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's all good. Yeah. So she actually graduated from Wellesley College in 1884. Now, in her youth, Annie suffered from a handicap, and she was hard of hearing. Now, sources vary on the time frame that this actually happened. Sometimes it's attributed to the scarlet fever that she had, which she had while she had in college. Some right. people think she had it like she um, was younger. I mean, there's like different sources say different things. Right. Maybe she was born with it and it developed later right. in life or later yeah. in her youth. Yeah. 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 And some people actually claim that Annie's hearing loss made it difficult for her to socialize, which would explain why she was um, so focused on her work and perhaps why she never got married or had any children. Maybe. Um, the other thing yeah. is she could have just been an introvert, you know, and yes. a really hard totally worker. plausible. I mean, mm-hmm. it really could go both ways. I mean, I wanted to mention both sides. I know a handful of scientists that they're not super social beings. Right. <laughs> it's not yeah. the, the norm, so, but, no. you know, everybody defies rules every now and again. <laughs> exactly. I believe that perhaps maybe her hearing loss helped her further career. As you'll learn later, and we'll tell you about later, Annie's research had a lot to do with seeing or looking at the stars. Her vision was exemplary, and as you will later hear more about. Um, And it is said that if you lose one of your five senses, your other four will actually heighten to make up for it. And I personally think that that helped Annie out in the long run, and it just helped her do her job. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. And the listeners will learn more about why from you, Kate. Yes. Well, after her graduation, she returned home to Delaware, and for the next 10 years, she would actually study photography. Here's a very tiny sidebar on photography at this time. Um, Photography actually has its origins with the camera obscura. It might go back as far as the Neolithic period to be used in cave paintings. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, The first camera obscura that is actually documented in writing that can really be traced back is around 300 bce in china right yeah what exactly wow (laughs) now also with photography it's kind of like the automotive industry that we talked about with mary anderson where a lot of people were working on different aspects of photography of camera of film developing um and then it eventually became what we know of it today Uh, through many, many different people. But it's generally accepted that photography was created in a practical form in 1839, but it was not yet for mass market use. And interestingly enough, a sidebar within a sidebar, the first photo book that was published was actually by a woman, uh, Anna Atkins. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so cool, Yeah. So Anna Atkins published photographs of British algae, Cenotype Impression, and that was in 1843 that we got our first photo book. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> I learned something new. I know. Just, I love the little tiny sidebars. <laughs> So photography, it was quite complicated uh, during this time that Annie was studying it. It involved a good bit of skill and training, especially when it came to developing and aperture, lighting, and also timing your exposure. Annie experimented with the lightweight Blair box camera, and that came out of Boston, Massachusetts. So she traveled through Europe and Spain with a Camerette 
camera. Uh, and she not only took pictures with the camera, but she also published a book. And it reads kind of like a travel blog, honestly. It's That's called so cool. In the Footsteps of Columbus. Uh, and you can actually uh, read it online because it is digitized by the Library of Congress. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Library of Congress. Yes. Oh, so nice. Uh, So it was actually published by the Blair Company, and it was distributed as a souvenir at Chicago's World Fair at 1893. Yeah. So the book is a wonderful adventure. But it's also a thinly veiled sales pitch. It really does. It makes sure it mentions what's available for purchase uh, multiple times. Um, So I do think that the Blair Company paid for her travel in exchange for the book. However, if they did or didn't, uh, Annie would actually utilize this photography knowledge later when we start talking about her looking at the stars. But she didn't know that yet. (laughs) Right. So when she returned home for a bit, uh, she wrote in her journal, I am sometimes very dissatisfied with my life here. I do want to accomplish something so badly. There are so many things that I could do if I only had the money. And when I think that I might be teaching and making money and still doing all that time improving myself, it makes me feel unhappy as if I am not doing all that I can. Oh and I thought that gosh. was very telling and very inspirational. So yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I feel it so much. <laughs> yep. Oh, totally. Yeah, I Hashtag love it. relatable. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1894, unfortunately, Annie's mother died, and Annie's life at home actually grew more difficult. Yeah. She wrote to her former instructor at Wellesley College and her professor, Sarah Francis Whiting, And she asked to see if there was a job opening. And Sarah hired her as her junior physics teacher at the college. So this opportunity allowed Annie to take graduate courses at the college in in physics and astronomy while also teaching. Her teacher also inspired Annie to learn more about the study of spectrums. So kind of like as Kate said earlier, Annie's ambitions grew well past college. I mean, she had other ideas and other ambitions. And in order to gain access to... A better telescope, Annie enrolled in Radcliffe College as a special student, continuing studies of astronomy. And Radcliffe was set up near Harvard College. This was because um, it allowed Harvard professors to repeat their lectures to the Radcliffe women. And Radcliffe was an all-woman college. This relationship gave Annie access to the Harvard College Observatory. And in 1896, Edward C. Pickering hired her as an assistant at the observatory. And also in 1896, she took part in the first x-ray experiments in this country. And this is where her career continued to blossom as an astronomer, and it really just started to grow. And in 1907, Annie finished her studies and received her master's from Wellesley College. So let's dig into what was first called the Pickering Women, And actually, nowadays, they are called the Harvard Computers. So working at the Harvard Observatory, their mission was to complete the Henry Draper catalog of mapping and defining every star in the sky using photography 
telescopes, and spectrum photography. So I'll actually go into more on spectrum here in a minute. So the men took the photographs and the women examined and cataloged and calculated the data. And there was a lot of data. Now, the team would eventually amass half a million photographic plates, and they all needed to be studied and cataloged. So for those of you who have seen the movie or even read the book Hidden Figures, the idea of women as computers, as calculating data, that might sound wonderfully familiar. (laughs) Right. So I don't know exactly how I feel about Pickering, <laughs> as it is said that he his deciding factor on hiring women was that he could pay them less and that men got bored with the work, which also could imply that women were simple-minded, which was a common thought in the scientific community at that time. However... There is a story that Pickering was first hiring men, and he grew more and more frustrated with them, and he eventually declared that even his maid could do a better job. So he hired his maid. Holy cow, that's funny. He did. I yeah, I know, right? At least he yeah. put his money where his mouth was. Right? <laughs> There's that. Uh, There's so Wilhelmina that. Fleming was the first Pickering woman employed, and she did, in fact, do a stellar job. She identified and classified most of the spectra in the very first catalog that they published, and that was in 1890. She was then put wow. in charge of the female staff that followed. So it was a very wise decision. (laughs) Now, I do want to believe that there was more of the good for the project than the penny-pinchingness and any sexism, but I couldn't really come to a conclusion before we needed to get this episode out there. I really do want to dig more into the Harvard computers, and maybe we could do a special episode on them, you know, in our next season when we do some more research, because they are quite fascinating, and there are many of them. Yeah. So first, let me paint a picture of what these ladies did. So at their beginnings, they would look at glass plates of photographs that were taken by the telescopes at the Harvard uh, Observatory, as well as other observatories in Peru, South Africa, New Zealand, and Chile. So these glass plates, they were eight by 10 in size. And the major focus on the photography was the spectra of the star. So think of it this way. When you shine a light through a prism, you get a rainbow of colors. And that rainbow of colors, that is your spectrum. So Pickering found that if he put a prism at the front of the telescope and then took a photo, it would produce a tiny gray smudge on a photographic plate. And then looking really closely at those smudges, it revealed vertical lines, black spectral lines, almost a barcode, if you think of it that way. It was a barcode of the star's chemical composition, their color, and their temperature. And that's what they were looking for, right? Super cool. Yeah. So the gals would make notes on the image's date, the exposure, and the area of where it was in the sky. They would also reduce the photographs and account for atmospheric refraction. In other words, they would render the photo to be as clear and as unchanged as possible. It was very important to make sure it wasn't altered in any way. Absolutely, because you're making technical readouts from this. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you can't mess I with it. I was always wondering. I was like, wow, you're they're actually measuring data using a photograph. Like I never thought about it that right. way before researching for this. Yeah. 
wow, you can you can actually do math based off of a photo. I guess with now with our age of Photoshop, yes, I was like, I don't think about it like that anymore because right. anything could be fake. Right, but very true. Not then. Like then, it was like everything was pristine. Then they had they purposely made it pristine, and they could make mm-hmm. calculations off of it, which is just super cool. Absolutely. And the other thing is when you have a telescope, really, you can only get one person behind it. But a photograph, you can have multiple eyes on it. And it's constant. It's not, you know, a variable within the telescope. So yeah, right. Yeah. So the the gals would copy this data into tables, and they worked six days a week. And they earned between 25 and 50 cents an hour, which is half of what the men would have been paid. 12 women started as Harvard computers, and over time, 40 to 80 women, depending on what source you look at, would work as a Harvard computer. So soon after Annie started working on the new issue of the Draper catalog, there was a massive disagreement on how the stars should be classified. So Antonio Murray, who was the niece of Henry Draper, you know, the guy who's paying for all this... So she wanted a complex classification system. And Williamina, our maid turned overseer, she wanted a very straightforward and simple approach. And it was Annie who negotiated a compromise between these two ideas. So there are many ways to catalog a star, hence also why there was a disagreement with it, because it was a new science and there was new ways to look at it. Now, there is already a classification system using spectrum. Around 1870, there was a color table that was published, and there's four different classes of stars, basically saying that all stars will fit into one of these four groups. And it was kind of how close or far apart the colors on that rainbow spectrum were for one another. These were called spectral lines, and that's how they decided to classify them first. Now, Antonia wanted the standard to be those line widths but she wanted to use Roman numerals. Wilhelmina wanted to expand those four classes and measure the hydrogen within their spectra and then measure them from A to Z using the alphabet, you know, like a normal person. Um, And she wanted the biggest to be first, right? Well, the A to Z method was actually what Wilhelmina worked on first, and that is what was published in her edition of the 1890 Draper catalog, the A to Z classification. So Annie's compromise was to measure them first by brightness, later by temperature. Once the technology developed, they realized that this was almost the same thing, but they could, you know, basically back the data on it. But this did complicate the A to Z because cataloging them by their brightness and their temperature totally messed up the A to Z. She found that stars that were B were actually brighter than stars that were labeled A. Uh, So, right, exactly. So instead of throwing out all of the letters that were already cataloged, she grouped the like ones together and she found six spectral classes and the letters that remained that fit those were O, B, A, F, G, K, M. Now, this sounds really hard to remember of those random letters put together, but this is a classification system that still remains today and students and astronomers remember it by the mnemonic Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Or, oh, be a fine guy, kiss me. So that's how they remembered the O-B-A-F-G-K-M. Right. Because <laughs> it's not an alphabetical order. Random. Right. And yeah. it seems random. Right. But it's classified by their brightness and their temperature. And yeah, 
So that's I how think that's she... just a brilliant compromise. It is. Yes. And then coming up with and then and then research says that Annie came up with that acronym. Right. Uh, to convince so, like, people. It's like a sales pitch, if you will. No, you can remember right, it this yeah. way. Right, <laughs> yeah. So she was, like yeah, she was trying to make it easier for people to learn yep. it. And she was trying to make it easier for people not have to relearn everything because right. she was using an existing science. Exactly. Yeah. She wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel, but she was trying to, um, she was trying to classify and organize in a way that made more sense to a broader spectrum of, uh, of research of people looking at the stars in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. So as Kate was talking about, women did not commonly rise beyond the level of assistant in this line of work in astronomy and all of that. And at this time there Many were paid at minimum wage, like Kate said, which was the 25 cents an hour. Um, But Annie dominated this field because of her, quote, tidiness and patience for the tedious work, which goes back to the important lessons her mother taught her when she was a young girl, which is cool being a girl and being like, oh, we're taught good things, you know? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Patience perseverance, organization, tidiness. Yes. It all pays off in the end sometimes. Absolutely. Listen to your moms. (laughs) Right. Listen to mom. Okay. (laughs) Just, just listen to mom guys. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So Annie even helped the men in her observatory gain popularity. And she helped with the exchanges of equipment between the men and the international community. And she wrote books and articles to increase the astronomy status And in 1933, she represented professional women in the World's Fair in Chicago, which I thought was just really cool because I made a documentary about Mammoth Cave and it just released um, this past February. And there was a cave guide that we talk about who was also at the Chicago World's Fair. And it's just cool to me that when history overlaps and we just get to remember that this all happened at the same time. And it's not just words in the history book. Anymore. Right. It's these a living history. Real, right. These are real people and they really could have met and they could have talked and they could have act, interacted. And, you know, it's just so cool. And Annie, she went to so many different world's fairs. And then this guy went to the same one. And I was like, it's oh my quite gosh. possible, it's like, right? Yeah. It really is. It's like, oh, they could have met. And I've done research on both of them. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like, mm-hmm. it just brings a whole new realness to everything. Yeah. History is alive if you let it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And one second you think that they're totally, completely different things and they have nothing to do with each other. And then here we are in our, like, overlapping again. It's mm-hmm. just... Really exciting to me. Fantastic. So Annie manually classified more stars in a lifetime than anyone else. She classified a total of around 350,000 stars. Wow. She discovered 300 variable stars, five novas, and one spectroscopic binary, creating a bibliography that included about 200,000 references. Goodness. Right? Mm-hmm. She discovered Amazing. her first star in 1898, but she was not able to confirm it until 1905. But she was able to confirm it herself. Nice. So when she first started cataloging the stars, she was able to classify a thousand stars in three years, which is a lot. But oh, by yeah. 1913, she was able to work on 200 stars an hour. 
Oh my That's gosh. That's more than three stars a minute just by looking. And she did this just by looking at their spectral patterns. Amazing. Right? So if she used a magnifying glass to look at the stars and look at the pictures and read the patterns, she could classify stars down to the ninth magnitude, which sounds like, oh, that's impressive, but what does that mean? Right, right, I'm with you. It's a, <laughs> right, it means it's around 16 times fainter than the human eye can see, which is why I think that her deafness may have helped her out, because even a magnifying glass with a normal eyesight, like, I don't think that, that right. evens out. Like, that's, her that's vision. still more than a... Yeah, right, it must have been really on it, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so I cool. really, really think that's why her deafness actually helped her out in her career. And her work was also highly accurate and fact-checked by everybody. It was just like, yeah, no, spot on. Amazing. Super cool. She's just... She's a rock star. So sciencey. <laughs> She's a rock star. Oh, yep. my goodness. It's like so much science, so much math. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, amazing. So on May 9th in 1922... The International Astronomical Union passed the resolution to formally adopt any stellar classification system, and they only had minor changes, and it's still being used for a classification today, and we're still being taught in our science books. Yes! Oh, that is amazing. Right? <laughs> Look at that. I love it. Um, here's an interesting kind of sidebar, uh, but it's right. still staying with uh, with Annie Jump Cannon. Because in just about every biography uh, in doing this research, the ones that I have come across, it will have a sentence that will say, she was a suffragette and a member of the National Women's Party. And I thought, that's great. Let me dig into that further. Yeah. <laughs> now, the National Women's Party doesn't have any current links to her. Um, it doesn't mean she wasn't in it. It just means I couldn't find anything of that was documented on the website. Now, and I also wasn't able to find any accounts of either her work or her speeches online. Now, it does turn out that many documents are stored at Harvard University, and they all include her speeches, as well as letters supporting women in the sciences and other women's organizations. However, I don't have access to those beautiful boxes sitting at Harvard, and it doesn't appear that those have been digitized yet. But I was able to discover that she did give a speech called Astronomy for Women in 1929. She did speak at the Hall of Science in Chicago on the topic of women in science in 1933. She was a participant of the World's Fair in 1939 because she kept documents of that. Now, Annie also, she wasn't In the same vein of the outspokenness of, say, Susan B. Anthony or Alice Paul when it came to suffrage and women's rights. But she did stress the importance and the need for equality in her field of science. And she did attend women's meetings and she did correspond with organizers. She was kind of more your middle of the road feminist, if there is such a thing. (laughs) Makes sense, actually. Right, yeah. She helped the women she could. She inspired more women to join the sciences, but she really was concentrating on her work with star classifications because that was her passion. She was also very much aware of the importance of men, like Pickering, for even having an opportunity offered to women. So she did realize that men were a very much important part of this conversation. Um, So in the book, Madame Curie, 
Complex by Julie Des Jarnes. She writes about Annie and she says, quote, and yet for all the accolades she attributed to women at the World's Fair, she conceded that men have held the lead in interpretive enterprises. Now, I interpret that as Annie knew how thick that glass ceiling was, especially for women in science, and that she wasn't going to be the one to break it on that particular day, on her particular lifetime. But maybe she could crack it a little by doing really stellar work. That's kind of my theory. That's awesome. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. She was she was in the fight. <laughs> but she was fighting in her own way. <laughs> Right. And so you were looking at, she has tons of awards and honors and just like cool stuff associated with her. And you were digging into the plethora of those things. Yes. She has so many different things and I just want to tell you all about them because, oh my goodness. They're awesome. Um, Yes. So she, yeah, they are. They're all like, I'll just tell you. Okay. So (laughs) Annie published her first catalog of Stellar Spectra in 1901. And in 1911, she was made the curator of astronomical photographs at Harvard. And in 1914, she was admitted as an honorary member at the Royal Astronomical Society. Which is very cool. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just, oh, Mm -hmm. my gosh. So, in 1921, she became one of the first women to receive an honorary doctorate from a European university. Nice. Then... In 1925, she became the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate of science from Oxford University. Yeah, Just, you know, all of the big schools you could possibly think of, you know, mm-hmm. she was, you she know, was a doctor. honorary. There, <laughs> yep. She was there. You know, they just yes. gave her all of the props. It, no big deal, right? Right. I love it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She became the William C. Bond astronomer at Harvard University in 1938. Um, in 1929, she was chosen as one of the greatest living American women by the League of Women Voters. Excellent. Which is super sweet. Yep. In 1931, she was the first woman to receive a Henry Draper Medal. Mm-hmm. In 1932, she won the Ellen Richards Prize from the Association to Aid Scientific Research by Women. Awesome. By the way, Ellen Richards is the very first uh, female chemist. Ooh. Yes. Yeah, that's why it's named after her. She is on our list to cover one of these days. (laughs) Yay. So in 1935, Annie received an honorary degree from Oglethorpe University, and she was the first woman elected as officer of the American Astronomical Society. Get this, though. Get just... This one is the coolest to me. All right. Mm -hmm. Annie even has a lunar crater, like a crater on the moon, wow. named after her, called Aww. Cannon. Isn't that cool? That's very cool. Like, you can cool. go look at the moon and be like, there's something up there called Cannon. She's got a spot on the moon. She's got a spot on the moon. Like, how cool is that? <laughs> very cool. Right? There's also an asteroid, number 1120, called Cannonia, and that's named after her. Awesome. How many people can say that they have space objects named after them? Right. Like, that's just so cool. The Hubble <laughs> guy is the only other one that really comes to mind right away. That's it. Like, end right? of list for me. Yeah, <laughs> that I know. That's Yeah, that we know of. That's just, the list is not very long. Wow, that's <laughs> that, cool. Well, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, there are other various things on Earth named after Annie, such as Cannon Hall, which is a resident 
dormitory at the University of Delaware. And then also the Annie Jump Cannon House, which is a residence of the president of Wellesley College in Dover, Delaware. Cool. So she was also given various other titles, such as the Curator of Astronomical Photographs at Harvard. She was a member of the Royal Astronomical Society in Europe, an honorary member of the Phi Beta Kappa at Wellesley College, and a charter member of the Maria Mitchell Association. And finally, she had a Google Doodle honoring her and her work, and that was on Google, of course, appearing in 2014. Oh, that's very cool. Isn't that cool? <laughs> I she love has so many that. cool things. Like, okay, new life goal. I feel like I have a new life goal every time <laughs> research a gal. Right, exactly. But a new life goal. Yes. Have something in space named after you. There you That'd go. That'd be cool. Yes, do that. <laughs> I love it. Do that. It. Do the thing. <laughs> if you are in science, do the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It would be so awesome. Oh, that's that's a legacy right there. I love it. Right? (laughs) So when it also came to who did she inspire, um, especially did she, you know, uh, what legacy would she leave kind of for other astronomers? So for 25 years, she was the chairman of the Harvard Observatory Astronomical Fellowship Committee. And one of her tasks was to assist the Maria Mitchell Association, which you mentioned. Um, So Annie traveled to Nantucket two years in a row and gave a series of lectures and instructions on astronomy. She also continued to correspond with the students by mail in between visits. So later, she became the founder of the astronomy department at the Maria Mitchell Association. So when their observatory was completed in 1908, they needed a permanent astronomer. Annie developed and chaired a committee to make this a reality. They provided public observing and offered far more extensive programs. So in 1933, Annie established the Canon Committee with money that she got from the Ellen Richards Prize. The Canon Committee would eventually become the Annie Jump Canon Award. And that is right now administered by the American Astronomical Society. Now, the award is to honor women in the field of astronomy. The award is given to outstanding research and promise for future research by a postdoctoral woman researcher. Uh, the very first award recipient went to Cecilia Payne. Cecilia studied the star's brightness in order to understand the structure of the Milky Way. And in 1956, she became the first woman to be promoted to full professor at Harvard. What? Yeah, it was a big deal. And it happened in 56. <laughs> wow. Because yep. even Annie didn't get that. I mean, it was wow. that was not in the cards then. Uh, later, Cecilia would become the first woman to head the department at Harvard. And she chaired the Department of Astronomy, which is fantastic. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So also, Annie was in a Wonder Woman comic. I'm not even kidding. Oh my gosh, that's right. Oh yes. my gosh, you're yeah. so right. I forgot to read it all today, but I saw, I was like, Annie, Wonder Woman? Annie, uh-huh. Wonder Woman? I, I was like, I just stared at it for like five minutes. Like, is this for real? Like, totally. Absolutely. Oh I'm my a big so Wonder cool. Woman geek. And so oh, I yeah. had to bring this in there. So an issue of Wonder Woman number 33, it was published in 1949. So it was published uh, after Annie, unfortunately, had died. But they had a three to four page section called Wonder Women of History that would be yeah. included with the comic. Yeah. So Annie's life and a accomplishment 
accomplishments were laid out in comic book fashion. So and cool. it ends with, and I love this, it just totally, absolutely encapsulates it. It says, this Wonder Woman of science created a reputation for herself that was the joy of men and women alike, a pure scientist of the loftiest order. She was also a human being of the finest type, and it signed Diana oh. Prince, Wonder Woman. And I love that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Yes. Geeking out. I know. Totally. So So it is hard to say exactly who Annie inspired, but it's really clear that in the many articles and profiles that I read about her, that in her 40 year career in astronomy, the connections that she made with people really helped women gain acceptance and respect in the field of science. So many people said wonderful things about her. And it was clear that she was a pleasure to be around, that she was a hard worker and she did stellar work. Uh, She really did blaze a trail for more women astronomers. And we may not know exactly who links back to Annie Jump Cannon, but I think she cast a really wide net to inspire a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny on that note, when I was researching like the science for Annie this week, Mm -hmm. um, I was fine. I was finding all sorts of different kinds of videos first off, but one was like this lady who was a professor who was explaining the science behind studying stars and the math behind it. And a lot of it was over my head. Don't get me wrong. But (laughs) (laughs) she, she clearly knew what she was talking about, but she was very passionate about it. Yeah. Like, like, I just like imagined Annie's passion, like through her. She didn't, she wasn't one that specifically mentioned about Annie, but she was talking about similar things. Yep. And it was just really cool to kind of see that come to life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, this is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love passion in any form. And it's very identifiable. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what legacy do you think Annie wanted to leave behind? I think this is an interesting question because of her comment that you mentioned earlier, Kate, where she mm-hmm. was like, she wasn't ever... Uh, satisfied with settling down. She always wanted to learn more. She always wanted to do something. advance more. I feel like it was a lot of self-improvement on her part. Mm-hmm. Like, she got down to classifying three stars a minute. That, that feels a lot like she was, you know, like a runner goes and tries to beat themselves. Right. You know, that feels a lot like trying to beat your personal best type mm-hmm. thing. Yep. So I, I feel like it was a lot of, like, she was trying to leave a path for herself she was passionate about it this was something that she wanted to do but it was difficult still even with Mm -hmm. being passionate about it I feel like um she was really trying to leave the groundwork for other people like trying to to uh leave her own legacy to make it a little easier on women who are following her yeah, I think it was is it's interesting how the the fact that she was introverted and she she was so focused on beating her personal best and all this stuff, but also mm-hmm. trying to reach out and make a difference. I feel like that says a lot. I had to guess, of course, which we always do. <laughs> yeah, we always guess. This is a guesswork completely. It really <laughs> but is. It's Some- fun. 
Sometimes they're clear on, you know, this is the legacy I wanted to leave. And others totally. are this, you know, other people have determined this is the legacy that this particular right. gal left. Um, right. So sometimes it is up to us and it's always our interpretation of it anyway. Right. right. <laughs> so my thought was that she wanted to leave a legacy behind where the knowledge that women were just as capable as men when it came to science. Um, that simply there was a place at the table for women in science. And I, I oh. honestly, I kept going back to her journal entry too. I really did about feeling unhappy and wanting to accomplish something. It just, right. it, that really felt real and kind of a telling of her character. So when right. you connect those dots, you find a magical thing really happened because when you're really good and you're really passionate about something, um, opportunities just kind of appear. And I think that merge right. of photography and stars and calculations and cataloging, that was a one in a lifetime opportunity for Annie. And she used those skills and she also used right. that drive of just wanting to do something, wanting to accomplish something that was measurable. Um, and yeah. so I think she was immensely proud of the work that she did. And I feel like she wanted other people to have that feeling too. That's that kind of, that's kind yeah. of how I interpret it sort of thing. So yeah. yeah. And that, that's a, that's a really great point. Have a measurable accomplishment. Yes, it does. It really, it does help. Because I mean, she's a scientist. Yes, because, totally. You know, yeah. Like all of those numbers that we mentioned, like those mattered to her, you know, mm -hmm. she, like, I think that's an amazing point. And if you think about it, um, how you, um, how you value a life. There's so right. many different ways to catalog it, if you will. So even right. if you think of how uh, Annie and the Harvard computers were debating the different ways to catalog it, do you catalog right. it by a value of a life by awards, by the people that you have helped, by how much money you have made? Everybody has a different value system when it comes to classifying yeah. a life. And really all that matters is how you classify your own. <laughs> Totally. That's the that's the right one. So, yeah. yeah. No, it's totally. <laughs> what did you learn from Annie this week? Well, um, I learned that it's okay to be an introvert. Mm. That is a big deal because I feel like extroverts get a lot of props for like impacting the world and stuff, which is great because like Yes, we need them. Direct, but yeah, yeah, we need it extroverts completely. But like introverts are often the misunderstood people. Right. And I think that that's really cool that we actually get to research an introvert and be like, no, mm -hmm. she did. She accomplished things, too. And she did some really awesome things. And, yeah, I think that that's really cool and it's really relatable. And yes. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot about science from Annie. I mean, even though you're the one who explained it all, Kate, um, we both, like, researched it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, wow. We both had this to kind of understand it the best we could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was really fascinating to me to learn the science behind it. And I really enjoyed learning the science behind the photography because yeah. I never thought that photography was used as a scientific measurement, even though it makes sense. Like, now that right. I'm thinking about it, it makes total sense. But I, like, never thought about it that way. So I thought that that yeah. was really cool. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I dig it. So what did you learn? I learned that being a nice person is always worth it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I really did. I mean, because sometimes being a nice person, you become a doormat at times. Um, mm -hmm. And you're like, why am I so nice? People are just trampling over me. Uh, but there every is. Every day, all day, every day. <laughs> I know. 
But there is more good <laughs> and there is more good for others that come out of just being a nice person and not an overachieving, you know, stick in the mud kind of sort of right. thing. Totally. Um, everybody out of my way, me first sort of thing. So because right. really everything that I read about Annie is about how nice she was. Um, yeah. She really became part of people's lives. You meet her once and you're going to talk to her. <laughs> For the rest of your life in one way or another, she doesn't, she never forgot somebody that she met, um, which I thought was amazing. Um, I just thought about like her connections, they reach to the stars and back. And I thought that that was lovely. And I think that's a life goal, basically, you know, you find out what you're good at, you accomplish something, and you be a nice person along the way. So that's that's kind of what I learned from Annie. I love that. <laughs> and now I want to know because we learned totally different things from her this week. I feel yes, like. yeah. I want to know what the viewers thought about. Absolutely. Her, about her yes. Week. Yeah. Tell us what you guys learned, and you know what yeah. you can take with you. What's tangible that you can take with you about Annie? We would absolutely love to know because it That'd is be personal so cool. and it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now I do have one more quick uh final thought that i want to add in there it didn't really fit anywhere else but i want to make sure i added it uh there was also a harvard computer who was a very important gal to astronomy henrietta swan levitt she started just a few years before annie did and henrietta discovered the relationship of light fluctuation in cephalids and later, this actually allowed astronomers to calculate a star's distance from the Earth, which was the foundation of Edwin Hubble's finding in 1925 that the Milky Way was not the only one in the galaxy. Oh, right. That's cool. Also, Henrietta was also partly deaf because of an illness that she got after college as well. Right. So Henrietta was amazing. And she died at an early age of 53 of cancer. And she struggled. She really struggled uh, a lot in her life with health problems. And it's always one of those what would have should have could have what else could she have discovered uh, and calculated and uncovered if she hadn't been so sick and her life wasn't cut so short. So as we remember and put a focus on Annie, uh, there are many Harvard computers to also learn about. And so I kind of wanted to give a shout out to Henrietta. That's awesome. No, that's she fantastic. did some really cool stuff too. And she was, she was right there with Annie. So yeah. Totally. That's awesome. Well, that wraps it up for us. Once again, let us know what you learned from Annie this week. We would absolutely love to know. Uh, oh, so we leave you with this quote from Annie Jump Cannon. Classifying the stars has helped materially in all studies of the structure of the universe. For more information about this week's gal or to check out our previous episodes, visit galsguide.org. To support the show, visit the Gals Guide Patreon page. We've got great perks like behind the scenes, early access, and private live streams. Thank you so much for subscribing to Your Gal Friday.